many remember Chester from Gunsmoke? A couple of hands. That's who I feel like right now. I took a slip in June and severed my MCL. Some of you know what that is. And it didn't actually hurt, so I didn't get it taken care of for two and a half months. And now they locked me down in a brace, so I'm hobbling around, around here. Good morning. You guys sound nice and awake. More than I am. I'm not a morning person, and I'm, I'm two hours uh, removed from Los Angeles right now, so this is crack of dawn for me. Um, and one woman said, Mr. Kokel, you must have a great quiet time in the morning. I said, frankly, ma'am, before my first cup of coffee, I'm an atheist. <laughs> so I had my coffee this morning about two hours ago, just getting into my bloodstream, actually. And actually, right now, I'm a Jehovah's Witness, but, uh, you know, <laughs> give me a little time. I'm actually here uh, this morning because my life has been deeply changed by an ancient teacher. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, and uh, nearly 40 years ago now, when I was a student at UCLA, even though I, I, I never at, at that time ever gave serious consideration to what he taught and the way he saw the world, I just started thinking more about it. I was being challenged by people in my life and at school, and I began to give more thought to the way Jesus saw reality and, uh, and, and also to, to the claim that he made in my own life. And it took me about six or eight months of really thinking, asking a lot of questions, but I finally became convinced that Jesus got it right. That is, he saw the world the way it really was, and it seemed to me then the smart money was on Jesus, and the smartest thing that I could ever do was to fall in behind him and follow him. And I've been doing that now for actually 39 years ago yesterday, my spiritual birthday. Listen, I got to tell you, though, thank you, it's not... It's not all been easy. It isn't like I've had all my questions answered, but I got to tell you, it's been real. It's been real walking with the author of life and the author of reality. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, I'm not here to convert you. I mean, that's not my goal today. Uh, I hope that what I do with you is, um, is, is just put a stone in your shoe, all right? I just want to kind of annoy you in a good way. <laughs> by the things that I say, so you're kind of hobbling out of here, thinking about something I said because I've become convinced that Christianity is really worth thinking about. One of the things, by the way, I noticed, that though I've become persuaded, lots of people haven't been persuaded, and they have reasons why they're not persuaded about Christianity. And, and, and I thought about it, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of ways that, that you can show Christianity is false. I mean, look, our story starts, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if there is no God, if the atheists prevail in the argument and show that there is no God, well, we're pretty much washed up, right? What if Jesus never existed? If Jesus didn't exist, or he's just a man that didn't do the things the New Testament declares, well, then, you know, we're out of business as well. If there's no soul, there's nothing to survive the death of our bodies, so nothing can go to heaven or hell, that's the end of it for Christianity. If morality is simply relative, if there's no objective morality, then there's no uh, objective right or wrong, and there's no sin, and therefore there's nothing to be forgiven of, so you don't need a Savior. And that's another way to demonstrate that Christianity is false. Now, I don't think any of these, these, uh, the, these strategies ultimately work. I think they all fail. Um, but at least they are, I would say, uh, noble attempts. They are reasonable ways of trying to challenge uh, the foundation of what Christians say is actually true. And um, yet, it, 
on the other hand, and oh, incidentally, there, there, right now, there is a full court press on Christianity in every single one of these areas. It seems everywhere you turn, there are challenges facing Christians, which is one of the reasons it's great to have a conference like this. But there are other kinds of arguments um, that I don't think fare as well, in the sense that they don't even get started. These are arguments that seem persuasive to people at first blush. But when you think about it for a little bit with a critical mind, you realize that these, these, these points of view are not going to get off the ground. I call these bad arguments against religion. And some of them aren't just uh, actually even rise to the level of arguments. They're just maybe mistaken understandings about things that have allowed people who are skeptics to feel comfortable dismissing the claims of Jesus of Nazareth, not even considering them, maybe ridiculing them and making fun of them without realizing that the point that they've just advanced doesn't ultimately stand on its own. Bad arguments against religion. And I want to talk about these as we kick this uh, conference off um, for three reasons. One, I want for those of you who are, have heard these arguments or used these arguments, these bad arguments, I want you to see how these particular issues actually fail. And when you hear the objection or the concern in the future, maybe you'll remember some of the points that I've made and you can address that. Secondly, I hope that in the process of me showing you how these go wrong, that you'll, you'll pick up a little rhythm about how these kinds of things are answered. Uh, critical thinking or clear thinking uh, may be able to be taught, but I think it's caught more than it's taught. And so if you hang around in a certain sense with people who are working through these ideas, you kind of build that rhythm, and I hope that that happens here. But there's a third thing that I want you to see, and it's a larger principle that's in play. And it's simply this. It is axiomatic that some of the most intelligent people make the most foolish mistakes in thinking when it comes to spiritual things. I've seen, seen it happen time and time again. People who are PhDs, doctors, lawyers, uh, uh, intellectuals of all stripes, who are really brilliant people in their own field, and in many other things really have it all together. But when it comes to spiritual things, they make really foolish mistakes in thinking. For example, I when we first started Stand to Reason, oh, it was almost 20 years ago now, there was a gal who was working for us as a, a volunteer, and she worked at an attorney's office, and she was the only Christian, and all the attorneys were the smart guys, and she was one of the skirts, who was one of the stooges, believed in God and that kind of thing. That was their attitude. And she would share with them, but they would dismiss her. And one of the attorneys dismissed her with an objection that she shared with me, and she wanted me to respond and give her an answer of how would she would respond and help deal with this issue with the attorney friend of hers. And here's what the attorney had said. He said, I cannot believe in Christianity because Christianity requires a belief in the soul, which is true. But souls don't exist because there is no scientific evidence for the soul. So here's a man who is going to dismiss Christianity because there's no scientific evidence for a central element of the Christian concept of reality, the existence of the soul. Now, let me tell you why this is an odd thing for an attorney to say. Can you imagine if the attorney shows up at a trial the next day and um, presents evidence against a client, a defendant, 
to show that the defendant had a motive to commit the crime in question, and that's what implicates the client in this particular case. And the client's attorney, counselor, gets up, and he says in response, you know, counselor, you said that my client here has this thing you called a, what was that again, a, a motive? Do you have any scientific evidence for the existence of the motive? Can you please produce that if such a thing as a motive exists? Can you place it here on the desk? We can label it. Exhibit A. Of course, this would be ridiculous. Nobody does that because motives are not physical, but they are central to the enterprise of doing law. Indeed, laws themselves are not physical. They might be tokened in ink and paper with physical things representing the invisible laws, but the laws themselves are not physical. Um, contracts are not physical. They could be on a piece of paper. They could be on a disc. They could be on a screen. You could speak the words of the contract. None of these things, though representable in physical ways, are not themselves physical. In other words, what the attorney is doing is he's completely dismissing any consideration of Christianity because there's no scientific evidence for some of the things in Christianity, yet at the same time, his entire profession trades on immaterial realities. The same argument he has used against Christianity is enough, enough to dismiss the entire legal profession. That's an example of a bad argument. Something else is going on in people's minds when they raise these arguments. They think they're compelling, but ultimately they're not. So I want to give you four, I think all I have time now for is about, about four bad arguments, and I'm going to give them rather quickly, and I think you'll get the sense of them. By way of kind of strengthening you and encouraging your confidence that these things aren't going to work to challenge you. I hope it's going to take away your confidence if you're using these as skeptics. And I think you'll also see that something more is going on, and I'll key into this at the end, than just kind of the intellectual enterprise. Let me start with a common way that people try to undermine the force of Jesus' claims. And I said that there are many ways to disprove Christianity. This one here is actually right now one of the most popular it strikes many people as completely persuasive, but taken at face value, it's a pointless objection. Let me introduce it this way. Imagine that you and I were having a discussion about whether or not I saw a unicorn out in the field here at the edge of campus by the trees right around dusk. And you tell me, well, wait a minute, you know, it was dusk, right? So there wasn't that much light. Maybe you weren't really seeing clearly because, you know, people haven't seen too many unicorns on, around these parts lately, and maybe it was a deer or something like that. And I said, no, no, I was looking very carefully, and I had my glasses on, so I, I, I very distinctly saw the unicorn, and we're going back and forth, and somebody else comes up to us and says, what are you wasting your time talking about whether you saw a unicorn or not when unicorns don't exist? Now, can you see that if unicorns don't exist, this kind of makes the entire conversation I've been having with the other person kind of irrelevant? And this is the strategy underlying this first challenge against uh, Christianity. And 
that is that many people argue over which religion is true. And some will say, well, my religion is true. And say, no, 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 my religion is true. And off you go with this argument. But the discussion is pointless if there is no truth to begin with. And if there's no truth, then there's no sense arguing about who's right. So the first misguided challenge is claiming that there is no truth. And this is meant to be kind of an end around all of the details. You don't have to engage in all the details of discussion, the particular claims people are making and evidence is brought regarding any religious issue. There just is no truth about this anyway. In one sense, everybody's right with their own view. And it's meant to kind of engender a tolerant peace and harmony between people because we can say now relativistically, well, your, your views are true for you and his views are true for him and her views are true for her and you're all right for yourselves. So this is the relativistic, maybe the postmodern approach. The approach that says, ultimately, there is no truth that can be known about anything. Everything's a linguistic construction. We all have our little communities, and we tell each other our stories. Your story is good for you. Somebody else has a different story. Theirs is true for them, that kind of thing. There's no conflict because they're separate linguistic communities. By the way, I don't know if you've ever noticed, if you've heard this kind of response, the person who's making this point, Sounds like he's being tolerant by allowing everybody to have their claim for themselves. But notice that he's really saying that everybody's actually wrong. That everybody is wrong in their claim about reality. They're only right in making a relativistic, it's true for me claim for themselves. Now, this view I mentioned is known as postmodernism, a kind of a radical community-based relativism. Uh, there is no truth in the, in the sense that we, most of us use the word that is an accurate understanding of the way the world really is. Now, I just want to say that line one more time because this is important. This notion rejects the idea that there is any truth in the standard understanding of it. That is, nobody knows the way the world really is. We just have our own individual perceptions and point of view, and that's all you can say about it. Everybody's beliefs are true for them. Now, you can see right away how this would undermine Christianity or any religious claim. But I'm actually mystified that this has gained such favor among people who should know better. That is, people on campus, in the university, in the academy, where you pay really good cash money. Well, I guess not many people hit pay cash money anymore for university education. But you pay good money, you borrow good money, lots of it nowadays, to go to learn what? Didn't you think you came to learn the truth? But then the truth you end up learning or being socialized in is that there is no truth to learn. Some of you might think, I want my money back. But I wonder what people who say there is no truth want me to think about their statement. What do they want me to think about it? Now, I think they want me to take their claim seriously. But the minute that I start to take their claim seriously, yeah, I see, I think I understand what you're saying. Uh, I, you know what? You've convinced me. I think you're right. I think your view is true. Well, well, see, now I can't say that, can I? I can't say that their view is true. 
I can't say that their view is right because they've just disallowed me from making that claim. To put it simply, and this is going to sound almost simplistic to some people, and if you say it to, to, uh, to, to graduate students especially, it goes right over their head, all right? Undergrads can sometimes get this, but once you're at graduate level, no, you can't grab this. When somebody says there is no truth, I ask them a question. Is that true? Now, what are they going to say? Well, it's either, it's either true in the objective sense, which means it's self-refuting, then there is a truth, or it's own, their statement is only their own linguistically constructed view of reality. And if that's all he's telling me what his own truth is, why should I care? Or anybody else, for that matter, what his relativistic truth is. Now, when I say, given the statement, there is no truth, I say, is that true? Some people think, oh, well, that's a word trick. That's just too simple. I actually had a debate with Professor Marv Meyer of Chapman University. He's a, uh, 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 or was, he, he passed away recently. Um, he was an expert in the Gnostic Gospels. My translation of the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas is Marv Meyer's translation um, really, really smart guy. He's been on a lot of TV shows about historical issues with the gospel, whatever. And we were in a debate together. And the debate was titled, Is Truth True? And I defended the notion that truth was objective and could be known. And he opposed me. And I had a very simple way of addressing this debate. I went to the audience and made essentially the point I just made. That in order to do a debate... A debate is a very particular kind of thing. People show up and they stand on a stage and they take opposite positions and they argue with each other in a, in a pleasant fashion, hopefully. But the, there is an argument which claims, one person claims that the other person's view is false and their view is true. But the claim that Marv Meyer was making was that there was no truth. So I made the point to the audience, just for Marv Meyer to show up at an event like a debate, concedes my point of view to me. Now again, these were you know some graduate students, so it was just right over their head. So, <clears throat> so I, I had to give an illustration. Now in, I, I'm from Southern California, and I live on the West End, which is by the coast, and the prevailing winds blow the smog that we create in the West into the Inland Empire like Riverside County. But one summer, I was working as a carpenter in Riverside County. So we were breathing up that stuff, me and my buddy. And it was really bad. We were tearing up and coughing and sputtering and our throats hurt. And my buddy said, man, this smog is killing me. I, I just can't take it anymore. I got to take a break. I'm going to go out back and have a smoke. <laughs> God is my witness. He didn't... Oh, free breathing restored. You know, what's, what's with that, you know? Well, the same thing's going on here. And now I'm telling the audience this. I see Marv Meyer is basically saying that Aristotle is wrong, Derrida is right, Kokel is wrong, Meyer is right. One side is false, the other is true. At the end of the debate, I get the last word. And so I told the audience, we're about to vote. I told the audience, uh, in a moment you're going to vote, and some of you are going to vote for Dr. Meyer, and I think he did a really good job, and I think many of you should vote for him. I, he, 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 was, he, he made a good characterization. But I just want you to be aware of what you'll be saying when you strike your ballot for Dr. Marv Meyer. You will be saying that Dr. Meyer has persuaded you that his point of view is 
true and Mr. Kokel's view is false, and therefore every vote for Dr. Meyer will be a vote for the resolve, which I was defending. Thank you very much. You know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, a vote for him is a really a vote for me. So after the tally was done, I'm not making this up, Bill. And the tally was done, Marv Meyer got one vote. Somebody wasn't paying attention. Now, there are two other people who wrote a bunch of postmodern gobbledygook around the edges. They wouldn't strike either box because they saw the trap. But it was not a trap that I set. It was a trap that reality set. There is truth. If there was not truth that could be known and you didn't know some of it, you'd be dead in a day. We are truth seekers by nature. Everything we do is an assessment of reality to find out the way things actually are. And the claim that there is no truth says that all such attempts are fruitless. There's nothing to discover. This is obviously false. It's also dangerous. It's like convincing you there are no such things as germs and disease before inviting you to dine in a dump. If you're convinced there is no truth, there's nothing to protect you from being destroyed by lies. And there are lies, and they do destroy. So don't make the foolish mistake of claiming there is no truth. It's very popular nowadays, but it's obviously false. Okay? That's the first bad argument. Second, the first mistake leads to another error, and that is if people are convinced there is no truth, or at least no truth of a religious kind, which would be the more modernist take on this, then there cannot be, even in principle, any evidence to substantiate a religious claim or religious belief. Therefore, if somebody thinks that any religious claim is true, it must be based on faith. And here I mean the leap of variety. And earlier Todd made reference to this notion that not only outside of the church, but inside of the church, people have this sense that what faith entails is a leap. Frankly, I do not use the word faith anymore. If you listen carefully to my introduction, it never occurred. I talked about putting my trust in Jesus because that's a good synonym that you can use for the act of faith that Christians talk about. But I don't use the word faith because it's corrupted in English. I can't say the word faith without many people automatically adding extra words that I didn't mention. Leap of or blind. This is the, and the same thing with belief. He's a person of belief. Well, people think that it's just a religious fantasy when they hear those words. They haven't assessed anything. It's automatic in our culture right now. I don't want to be thought of a man as a man of faith. I want to be thought of as a man of spiritual conviction. That I have spiritual notions that I believe are true for good reasons. And so I use different language to describe it. Because the word faith is deeply misunderstood even by Christians. And it's not that faith isn't valuable. Of course it is. It's essential. If what we mean by that is a step of trust. But for many people, the idea of faith and knowledge are opposites. Now, Ten years ago, I was in France and Strasbourg doing some work with John Montgomery, um, teaching apologetics. And I took a couple of days to go to... The, the coast of Normandy and kind of see the sights for D-Day, and I just wanted to get my feet in the sand and just imagine what had happened there on, on June 6, 1944. I'd read the books by Stephen Ambrose, and I'd seen the movie 
uh, Saving Private Ryan and did some study there. So it was real important to me. And I was sitting in a little uh, cafe in Bayou, which is a town right there near the, the landing site. And I was having conversation with a family next to me, a British man and his wife, two teenage kids. And, and, and I, he asked me what I was doing generally in Europe. And I told him that I was lecturing in the university in the area of theology. And, and he said, oh, yeah, theology, religion, that takes faith, which is true. But then he, he said, she has it, pointing to his wife. We don't. And so in his view, faith, as we talked, was something like a, some people have this strange ability to believe ridiculous things and feel good about it. And I said, well, that's actually one of the things I was teaching on, that that was a misconception and we had a conversation. But this is a misconception lots of Christians have. That is that you have knowledge on one side and you can have reasons and arguments and evidence and all kinds of things that give you knowledge. And then for everything else, you exercise faith. And that's religion. And in fact, some people would be pushing back against a conference like this one because they'd say, look, if you've got all those reasons, where's room for faith? Notice the contrast between faith and reason or uh, faith and, 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 and knowledge. So here's what I want to do. I want to do a very quick little Bible study. And I want to show you that this notion is not taught in the Bible, that a different notion is taught. And the notion that is taught is that evidence is in place that gives us knowledge, in other words, justified conviction about something, and based on the evidence giving us knowledge, we then take a step of trust in light of that information. Yesterday, I got on an airplane from Los Angeles. I had every reason to believe, based on the evidence, I had knowledge that that airplane was capable of taking me here to Dallas. But I did not exercise faith in the airplane until I got on it. You see the difference there. So it's not just having the evidence that gives you knowledge and you have an intellectual assent. You have to do something. You have to have active trust. But that's the order. It isn't blind faith. So I'm going to start here. I'm going to give you three examples. Very quickly, you can write these down. Check them out yourself. At Stand to Reason, we have a rule. Never read a Bible verse. You want to know what a verse means? You've got to read a paragraph or more. I'll give you the background, but I want you to go back to these. Starts in Exodus 4. This is the Exodus. Moses before God. Burning bush. God says Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Moses says, why should they follow me? Very fair question. Here's the skeptic's response. Why should they listen to me? Why should Pharaoh listen? Why should the Jews listen? And God says, you see that staff? Throw it down. It becomes a snake. Pick it up. It becomes a staff again. You show that to them. And while we're there, we'll turn the Nile into blood. We'll get the gnats, uh, gnats all over them. And we'll get boils on their skin. We'll uh, put the sun out. You know, we'll do all this stuff to get their attention. Now, why does God say that Moses should participate in this? What is the reason for it? He doesn't say, go to Pharaoh, and when Pharaoh says, why should I believe you? You got to just believe, brother. You got to have faith. He doesn't say that. He gives him signs to perform to persuade. God says, so that they will know 
that there is a God in Israel. By the way, that phrase doesn't appear just that one time in chapter 4. It appears ten different times throughout this account. So that they will know, so that they will know, so that they will know. And down through all of the plagues, the same thing is repeated until at the end, what we see, the ultimate result in Exodus 14, verse 31, and when Israel saw the great power which the Lord has used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed. There was evidence that gave knowledge, then it was up to them to take a step, to put their trust in it, and they did that. The powerful evidence, giving people knowledge of God in whom they placed their active trust. So that's Exodus. Okay, I just want you to make a note. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through 40. The exact same thing is going on there. I don't have time to get into it. 1 Kings 18, 20 through 40. Third example, let's go to New Testament. And some of you might be thinking, well, why are you quoting the Bible when I don't even believe in the Bible, if you're a skeptic out there? Even though you don't believe in the Bible, what you need to understand is the point that I'm making, that the Bible or the Christian view of faith is not a leap. If Christians have represented that to you, if you have understood it that way, then both is a misunderstanding of the biblical teaching. Now, maybe you don't believe the biblical teaching, but at least be clear on what it is. That's the point I'm making. You don't have to believe in these accounts. The point I'm making is what does the text teach about the nature of faith. And so let's see what Jesus had to say. Mark chapter 2. And here you have Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, very popular. He's in a house, big crowd on the outside. He's teaching inside. There's no way to get into the house because of the crowds, kind of the way it was probably about an hour ago here. And so they tore the roof off and dropped a man who's a paralytic down in the midst of the audience inside the house. Jesus saw the man and he says, your sins are forgiven you. Now, there's a murmur that goes on around the crowd because people understand that only God can forgive sins, and how is it this Nazarene is claiming this authority? And Jesus is aware of what's going on. And so he says, he asks a question. He says, what is it easier to say? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or arise, take up your pallet, and go home? Well, I don't know about you. You know, if you guys are all in wheelchairs right here, God forbid, it would be a lot easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven you, than to say, arise. I said, arise. How about best two out of three? You know, I'd look like an idiot if people didn't get up, right? So it's almost like Jesus is acknowledging that he took the easy way out because he's making about a claim, forgiveness of sin, that no one can see. And then he says this, listen to the language, in order that you may, what's our word? Know that the Son of God has, the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. I say to you, arise, take up your pallet and go home. And he got up and he got out. And so what Jesus did is he proved a truth in the spiritual realm which people could not see by doing a miracle in the physical realm which people could see. And this is, happens all the time, not necessarily miracles. But what we do is we take the evidence that we have available to us, and there's a whole range of it, and we infer from that evidence the best explanation. And if the evidence is strong enough, it's not a leap of faith. It's a step of trust based on knowledge secured 
by the evidence. Let's fast forward to the book of Acts to show you one other example. This is Acts 2. This is Pentecost Sunday. The Holy Spirit is given. The disciples in the upper room, filled with the Spirit, roar of wind, tongues of fire, spill outside, big commotion. The people are aware of what's going on. And they think that the apostles who are doing these things are drunk. And Peter says, speaking for the group, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. We don't start drinking till noon. This is the Holy Spirit. No, he didn't say that, drink it till noon. But it is kind of the implication. Who drinks at nine in the morning, right? <clears throat> this isn't a Baptist church, is it? All right, just check it. Just check it. And then he goes and he gives a sermon and he talks about what they see and hear. Because you can see the tongues of fire, you can hear the roar. He said, this is a fulfillment of the prophet Joel. So there's fulfillment of prophecy he's quoting. He says, because Jesus has risen from the dead, this man, man who you crucified, you put him in the ground, he's up out of the ground, we were his witnesses, we're here boldly proclaiming this. So what does Peter do? He is giving apologetics all through his first sermon. You read back over it, it is filled with reasons why people should take the testimony that he has given them seriously. And then he closes like this, verse 37 and 38. He says, now let all the house of Israel, what's our word? No, but he does it one better. He says, no for certain. In other words, you can have the highest degree of justification. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they were cut to the quick, and they say, what must we do? And he said, repent, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christianity does not require a leap of faith. Faith for us is not religious wishful thinking. It might be for other people, but not for the historic Christian faith. We have always been willing to step up with the reasons, with the rationale, to make a difference. And um, just as, a, as I close this particular point out, uh, for the record, the opposite of reason is not faith. The opposite of reason is irrationality. Just for the record. I don't know, some of you might not have thought about this. The opposite of faith is not reason. The opposite of faith is unbelief. You can have an unreasonable unbelief. You can also have a reasonable step of trust. And this is what we are offering at this conference. All right, I got to skip, skip really quickly to a couple of things because I want to make the last mistake that I want to deal with is one that is, is, uh, is made all the time. In fact, it is right now the most common mistake that is made. And I'm just going to call this attacking the believer instead of his belief. Attacking the believer instead of his belief. In other, in, instead of dealing with the point of view, people have retrained their challenge onto the individual. I call this trash talk, by the way, because it happens so much. And um, I was at uh, UCSD, University of California, San Diego, and I was going to give a talk on one of the books I wrote, Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. <clears throat> and I asked the campus Christians, what was the skinny on campus about Christians? And they said, well, people on campus think Christians are stupid. I said, well, this is, a, this is a, a good way to start my talk. 
And so I stood up before a fairly large audience there in the ballroom in the center of campus, and I said, I understand you think Christians are stupid. Well, lots of Christians are. (laughs) But a lot of non-Christians are stupid too. So I don't know what that gets you. I'm here today to show you that Christianity is not stupid. Now, I want you to see something in the objection that's being raised. Notice that the objection isn't against Christianity as a worldview. It is against the person who holds the view. You're stupid. Well, people who are stupid can still hold accurate beliefs about things, right? And people who are smart can get it wrong. So attacking the believer doesn't help at all. And here's where I found the power of a simple two-letter word. It's the word S-O when used as a question. So, there's a sense in which, tactically now, you're going to agree with the challenge. And then you're going to ask, what point does the challenge make with regards to the issue? So when somebody says, oh, you're a Christian because you were born in America. If you were born in Iraq, you would be a Muslim. No, you're probably right. So? Now it's their turn to tell me why this observation about geography and sociology has anything to do with the claims of Jesus themselves because it has nothing to do with it. It doesn't tell you whether Islam is true or false or Christianity is true because it's not addressing the question. And the maxim basically is if you want to defeat a point of view, you've got to deal with the point of view. You can't just try to beat up on the person who holds it. But this happens all the time. Oh, Christianity is a crutch. You believe God because, in God because you're weak. Well, you know, I might respond, yeah, crippled people need crutches. <laughs> yes, Jesus is a crutch. So, does this mean Jesus is false? Because he serves some emotional need for me. No, it, it doesn't address that question whatsoever. Well, Christians are hypocrites. Yeah, I guess some are fakers. That's true. There's some in every religion. Lots in every religion, I imagine. So, I want to know from the person who offered the challenge what that observation has to do with the claim I just made. You're a bigot. You're intolerant. Maybe. How about if I agree with you? If I agree that I'm a bigot and intolerant, can now we set that aside and then get on to talk about the thing? Jesus or whatever it happens to be that we were talking about before. These are distractive nuisances, friends. Don't allow it to happen. You don't have to be mean. You don't have to be snotty. You could even agree with those kinds of points for the sake of discussion and then ask the word, so what does that have to do with anything? For those of students of philosophy or critical thinking, that's called the genetic fallacy or possibly the psychogenic fallacy or just simply an ad hominem. None of them work to deal with the issue. If you're a skeptic of Christianity, do not waste your time on that kind of foolishness. It helps you to justify your own view for the wrong reasons. You deserve better than that as a thinking person. So let me close this up with a thought. Why is it? And this brings me back to my opening observation. Why do intelligent people make foolish mistakes in thinking when it comes to spiritual things? And here, I don't know where Todd, Todd, you stole my line. I'll tell you what it is, but I heard it earlier from Todd, and I didn't write it down and plug it in. I had it before he said it. 
Frank Turek is talking after lunch, and he made me promise that I wouldn't steal any of his jokes, you know, so it wouldn't fall flat when he says it. I did that once, and it was really funny. But <laughs> only for me, not for Frank. Why do intelligent people make foolish mistakes? Or another way of putting it is, why do most intelligent people reject Christianity for the same reason that most unintelligent people reject Christianity? That is, it has nothing to do with intelligence. What it has to do with is the demand of the sovereign of the universe that we bow our knee to him, beat our breast, and ask for mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mea culpa, mea culpa. Through my fault, through my fault, I'm guilty. And the Father has offered us a means of mercy and forgiveness by his, through the kind intention of his will. But most people do not want to do that, so they hide behind foolish, bad arguments in order to justify their own rejection. That's a, an incredibly steep price, eternity, to pay for the short-lived pl pleasures of pride. If you remember only one thing from our talk, remember this. Many challenges sound compelling at first, but they collapse in the dust when you give them just a little bit of thought. Now, earlier Todd said, Silence is not an option. That's why I'm glad to be part of the team here with you. But it stands to reason we have a whole team that is there to assist you after all of us are long gone. In addition to this church and, and, uh, and Reasonable Faith and a bunch of other organizations, Stand to Reason is there. We're, we're in our 20th year. Write this down, str.org, str.org, Stand to Reason, str.org. we got over 1,000 pages of content there. I've been doing talk radio for 23 years. Three hours a week I broadcast, it's open lines. People call in and raise any questions or challenges they want, and I'll do my best as a good ambassador of Christ to deal with those challenges. You can podcast from iTunes or str.org for free. If you want to follow me on uh, Twitter, you can. Greg Kokel, that's K-O-U-K-L. Also, there's a card in your materials that's, uh, there's a perforation there. The blue thing is for you as you tear that off. Uh, that's a little thumbnail sketch of a question-asking tactic that will help you maneuver in conversation. Conversations. Every once in a while, I have to take a breath. <clears throat> the other piece of card where you fill out your name and address, tell me where you live, is for us. If you fill that out and drop it off at the bookstore, we will send you free training material every single month, a newsletter on alternating months, and then bimonthly, we will send you a mentoring letter, which is one page where I mentor you as a follower of Christ. And if you're not a follower of Christ, well, these will annoy you in a good way if you sign up for these as well. Thank you very much.